Hi, I'm Dr. John D. Martini, and I'm a human behavioral specialist, and you're listening to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. Emotional Inclusion Podcast. The Emotional Inclusion Podcast. The Emotional Inclusion Podcast. The Emotional Inclusion Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. Emotional inclusion is a call to all companies to take a stand and realize the urgent need to invest in a therapist in their organizations to address the emotional state of their employees, and especially those who need to be reintegrated into the workforce post-trying circumstances. Over my decade and a half long career in the fashion industry and listening to hundreds of stories of people who have navigated work whilst facing the perfect storm, I've realized the urgent need to advocate a safe platform in the corporate world where emotions can be heard, recognized, and dealt with for an enhanced business productivity. I invite you to tune in as I share practical wisdom and empowering conversations with influential leaders to break down archaic business stereotypes and lead the way to a better emotionally accepting corporate ecosystem. The Emotional Inclusion Podcast is here to shatter the status quo of today's business landscape and lead the way to a wholesome new mindset in the workforce. Hi, and welcome back to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Jean de Dieu, and today we take emotional inclusion in the workforce to a whole other level. We are sitting down today with a much esteemed Dr. John Demartini. Now, for those of you who somehow have not heard of him yet, Dr. Demartini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and global educator. He was just recently selected as Top Human Behavior Specialist of the Year for 2020 by the International Association of Top Professionals for his outstanding leadership and commitment to the profession. He has also played a key role in the internationally acclaimed documentary, The Secret, and is amongst the world's more renowned and respected researchers when it comes to human behavior and how it translates into performance. With 47 years of in-depth study to his name, he is one of the forefathers of human potential in aiding people all over the world to live more purposeful lives. Dr. Demartini has addressed public and professional audiences of up to 11,000 people at a time across the world and shared the stage with some of the world's most influential people, such as Sir Richard Branson, Stephen Covey, Steve Wozniak, Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra, and many more. From the thousands of testimonials he receives annually, Dr. Demartini's work changes people's lives forever. I have so much respect for this man and for all the groundbreaking teachings he has offered the world with. And so without any further ado, Dr. Demartini, a warm welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. 
So as a human behavioral therapist, you address the human factor and how our perceptions, our decisions and actions have a profound effect on the results that we get. Why do you think that so many leaders and companies still have so many biases around addressing the emotional state of their employees? That's a great question. I like to think of the brain as hierarchical. And the forebrain is like a governor. And the amygdala, which is subcortical, is like the impulse and instinct center that distracts us by seeking pleasures and avoiding pains. The governor center kind of moderates those and makes us look for objectives, which are more neutral and more prepared for the true balance of life. And the amygdala is trying to divide things and separate the inseparables, I call it. And whenever we're not living by what's really most meaningful to us, the mean, the thing that's most inspiring to us, most fulfilling, which brings blood glucose and oxygen into the forebrain, we end up activating our amygdala. And when we do that, we tend to subjectively bias our perceptions and distort our reality and exaggerate the prey and predator nature of people. We put them on pedestals with infatuation, put them in pits with resentment. And we become, in a sense, distracted by those misperceptions, which stops our governance of ourself as a leader and makes us skew our reality and distort our perceptions to such a degree that we are now extrinsically run instead of intrinsically called. And therefore, our Peter principle of emergence occurs. And we stop skillfully caring enough about other people to communicate effectively and objectively in terms of their values, which is respectful. And we tend to put down people or put people on pedestals, and both of which are not in our heart. We're not here to put people on pedestals or pits. We're here to put them in heart. And when we do in our heart, we tend to lead objectively and wisely with reason and inspiration. And when we don't, we become autocracies. We end up becoming narcissistic in autocracy because we project our values onto others and expect them to live in our values, which is futile. Articulating what we value in terms of what they value and caring enough about what they value reduces the probability of needing unions and healthcare interventions in our employees, which are symptoms of unengaged, uninspired people who are autocratically being told what to do and living out of duty instead of out of design and inspiration. Yes. And this also relates to a topic that you had discussed about the danger of this fantasy monopole perception of getting one-sided outcomes. So the two would be interestingly linked, correct? Absolutely. When we're in our amygdala, we seek pleasure hedonistically and try to avoid pain. We want the easy path, not the efficient work path. And I always say that addictive, compulsive, impulsive, immediate gratifying, hedonistic behaviors and addictive behaviors are compensations for unfulfilled highest values. It's a sign of disengagement. If you look carefully, when somebody's really engaged in something at work and they're really inspired by it, they don't even care about a break. They don't want to go and consume or go online and distract themselves and you know, want to go shopping or take a drug or anything. They're too busy doing something meaningful. So if we're not filling our day with things that are inspiring and meaningful, our day goes into our amygdala and we tend to disassociate from our disengaged environment and we end up going off on these immediate gratifying pathways. And that's the monopole perceptions. That's where we want a pleasure without a pain, happy without a sad, kind without a crew. We want a one-sided world, which isn't real. People don't go to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill their values. And if they don't feel that their job descriptions and the mission of the company is helping them fulfill their values, they disengage. 
And then they go off on non-productive actions. And then the owners and leaders get frustrated and then autocracy and this polarity starts merging. And a true governor leads by inspiration and guides by vision in terms of people's values where they're inspired to create a cause, an accomplishment of something. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, something about one of your traits really stuck with me. And you metric just about everything in your life, all of the books you've read up to about 30,000 and counting a bit more, I'm sure, at this stage. All the countries you have been in, cities you have gotten the chance to speak in. And in your words, you metric everything, you record everything because because a metric lets you know how to refine your action to pursue it and to achieve it. How would you metric positive emotional impactability in the corporate realm and thus integrate responsibility in this process? Well, there's a Japanese organization, I believe, called Conexa, that has done measurement, kind of KPI measurement systems on engagement to find out how inspired people are, engaged, and how much they want to actually go to work and be there and really produce. So there are metrics out there that are already out there, but I've kind of created my own. And I can tell when somebody's hired whether they're going to be productive or not by a certain set of questions in advance that I try to teach companies to incorporate in their hiring process. If you ask somebody who's about to be hired as a candidate, how specifically is doing this job duty, this specific job responsibility, how is it going to help you fulfill what is most deeply meaningful, inspiring, and priority in your life? If they hesitate more than three quarters of a second, they're disengaged. And I can nail it. And if I find out, if I go through the job description, and let's say there's 60 things on a job description, 50 things on a job description, and it's broken down by the actions, and it can't be broad things like sales. It's got to be the actual actions make telephone calls to these leads, that kind of stuff. If it's broken down, if I go through there and I find that 80% or 75% of those are engaged, you have a potential candidate. If more than 20, 25% of that are disengaged, don't even bother. And I can screen those people out because they don't go to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most. And if they can't see how that duty is going to help them do what's inspiring to them and meaningful to them, they're going to need to be micromanaged, motivated extrinsically, reminded, retrained all the time. And you just increased your cost. And when you have disengaged people, you get frustrated as a leader, and which then puts you in your amygdala. And then you get autocratic, narcissistic when you're challenged. And then you tend to project your values onto them without respecting them and caring enough about them. And so a lot of the symptoms in business is because we haven't screened wisely and got the right individual on the bus, as Colin says. And there's a science to that and an art to that. And if we follow that, we have a lot less of the crazies. And getting people that are really inspired by what they do liberates you and frees you to do what you would love doing and you're inspired to do, your highest priority action, and allow the other things to be taken care of. I research, I write, I teach. I'm useless everywhere else. That's it. I mean, I have to delegate everything. I haven't driven a car in 30 years, more than that. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I don't do anything except what my specialty is, which is researching and writing and teaching, period. I've delegated to specialists everything else, and it doesn't age you as much. You're more objective, more reasonable, more adaptable, more flexible, more resilient. Your heart rate variability shows it, and resiliency, your autonomics reveal it, and your physiology and symptoms. You don't oxidize with stresses as much. 
and you're way more fun to be working with. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. There's no doubt that concentrating on what you call your higher values is effectively the only way to living a fulfilled life and by definition, a happy one. I think the problematic we have within the corporate landscape is, whilst the screening during that hiring process is not always fulfilled in the way that you teach for it to be done, which would result in much better working ways in the long run, that today we do have these employees who at some point go through a difficult time in their life. And this is the school of life. We all go through our ups and downs. And I think the question is, is how do we metric a way of accompanying emotionally an employee during one of these times and prove effectively that by doing so, by the company really implicating itself in that employee's emotional well-being, that the bottom line results of that employee in the long run really do shine through Well, it all depends on the skills and the tools that the human resources or the individual corporate therapist or the leaders have at their knowledge base. I had a woman whose husband passed away suddenly that worked in my office, and she was not functioning productively. And, um, you know, there's a number of ways you can handle it. You can be an autocrat and you can say, well, go home and you're not going to get any pay. And when you're ready to be productive, that's the way you come back kind of thing. And you can be really harsh about it. You can sit there and be so compassionate that they can drain the company because they're not willing to work for the new two months or three months or something. And those extremes, usually neither one of them are going to be lasting because eventually it builds up problems. I walked in the office with her and I have a tool on how to dissolve grief. And it's an amazing tool. And I sat down with her and asked her a series of questions because grief is the perception of loss of that part of the individual that she was infatuated with. You don't grieve the loss of the things you resented about them. <laughs> you grieve the loss of the things you were infatuated with. So I went in there and grounded her a bit and brought her back into objectivity. And we found some of the challenging parts of him to balance out the infatuated parts of him. And in less than an hour, she was back. And there are tools that can be implemented that therapists and specialists who know what they're doing can come in there. And instead of it being a week, it could be hours or a day. Instead of it being a month, it can be weeks. If the appropriate knowledge base is brought into place, the efficiency of returning people to productivity and showing how whatever's happening is on the way, not in the way, is a gold mine if it's implemented. It's a gold mine. Companies usually become one extreme or the other until they either get so altruistically passive that they eventually get resentful and they go to the other extreme, or they become so autocratic that they end up losing employees and they have to hiring people, instead of going to those extremes, there's an objective way of caring about another individual to help them through without subordinating to their whiningness, but at the same time, not being so harsh that you're not caring. I always say careless is devaluing them and exaggerating you. Careful is walking on eggshells for somebody else. And caring, which keeps the rings on the finger, is having an equanimity within yourself and an equity between them with respect and doing what you can to help them produce for you but actually get back on track for themselves. That's caring. 
I love this. And actually, this parlays beautifully into the breakthrough experience, which for our listeners is a world-renowned two-day seminar that you, Dr. Demartini, have presented in over 60 countries around the world. And at the core of the program is your revolutionary method, the Demartini method that can be used to resolve any emotion or challenge such as fear, depression, low self-esteem, guilt, grief, trauma, or anxiety and help define, as you were just saying, career direction. It helps build communication, achieve goals, empower in your area of life and feel truly inspired by what you do. So the breakthrough experience is all about results. And I love it. As shared with you, Emotional Inclusion is a nonprofit organization that advocates companies to invest in a trained therapist in-house to oversee the emotional wellness of their employees and to really take the matter seriously. So my question to you is, in the context of emotional inclusion, would you see value in that an in-house company therapist get this breakthrough experience? training to effectively escalate employee awareness and why? Well, I'm guessing now, 30 years ago, I started in the health field and I did a lot of work in consulting and helping build clinical practices years ago in the 80s. And what's interesting is we started implementing facilitative specialists inside health professional offices for patients originally. And unquestionably, that was a not only a profitable introduction, it spilled over into all the staff. The same skills were now being able to be applied for the staff and the clinicians, the administrative staff and the clinicians. So most of the ones that incorporated that in there, they didn't get rid of that. They kept it going. I had quite a few of them doing because they saw that when you thought about the minor cost of what that is compared to the productivity, if it's done properly. I can't say anybody will do that. I don't want to say that because I've seen ones that they thought, well, I need to hire somebody, but they need to have people that are really resourceful, that are masterful at the skills that will actually require with a mindset of maximizing productivity for the company. It's got to produce more return on investment. It can't be cost. It's got to be able to produce. So anybody that can bring more enthusiasm, engagement, inspiration, resolve conflicts, resolve health distractions personal financial distract, all the things that people are facing, if they know how to resourcefully get those back on track, absolutely will produce. And the bigger the company, the more return on the investment it will be. So I take it you believe and obviously have from track record seen the meaningful results of applying emotional inclusion in the workforce. Well, you know, it's interesting. Right now, there's been for the last few decades crescendoing private coaches, you know, professional coaches. It's no different. But now it's different in the sense of what expertise is there. But it's the idea that an executive can see, I need a coach and the cost will produce more. But the needs of the people in the company is not an entrepreneurial coach. It's exactly what you said. It's an inclusive, somebody who's got the skills of knowing how to resolve and dissolve all the stuff that they deal with and face in their personal lives so they can be resourceful efficiently. And it's no different. It's interesting how we can say, well, I deserve having a coach, but the people that really run the company (laughs) do all the work. They're micro therapy coaches in a sense, because that's really what it is, because the therapists are really resourceful 
can act like a mini coach to every one of those people and get them back on track whenever they're distracted by their daily experiences. A hundred percent. The thing is, I use the analogy of a coach for executives only because they allow themselves the expenditure on a coach to justify that to grow their business. But the specialty that coach has is not the specialty that's needed for the management of people. The therapist is. Pardon me for saying this, but I, I just thought as I was smiling as you were saying this. When in 1979, I think, I had the opportunity to go into a company and clinically work with a therapist who worked in the company. And I was sitting there learning because I was interested in human behavior. And so I was sitting there just watching her. I just spent four hours with her, just watching her do clients. And she was bringing clients in and they, she asked him if it's okay to have an up and coming trainee kind of thing. And that's how we, she labeled it as a training. And I had this individual came in and she understood the psychology. There's some people, if you tell them what to do, they're like, they'll go and do it. Like a bird dog will just go get the bone. Other people, if you tell them they can't do it, they'll do it, right? There's, there's different people's personality, right? So she was really tough on this, this person that came in and said, you just don't have what it takes. You can't do anything else. And he went out there and proved that he could. And I thought, wow, she was really tough. And she laughed and she says, I deserve an Academy Award for that. I put on a good act. And the guy went out and produced unbelievably because he said he couldn't do it. Because I know about his father and I know about that's how he responds. When his father says he can't do something, that's when he goes out and does it. So I played a little bit of psychology. So those skills of human interaction, they're playful are skillful. And I watched her interact with different people with skills that the average coach isn't going to do. But I watched how her mission wasn't about being liked. Her mission was increasing the overall confidence and well-being and productivity of the people. Because when you're feeling productive, you're, you're like, there's no fulfillment in life if you're not doing something that makes a difference in people's lives. When you go to work, people think, I hate going to work. Why would you want to go to work on a job that's not inspiring? That's a disconnect. But finding a job that is inspiring to you is an important component of life. It truly is. It really, truly is. And now you have worked individually and collectively with entrepreneurs, board members, CEOs, managers, teams, and employees for 47 years. And your work with SMEs, large organizations, and governments, NGOs has ranged over 100 countries, such as India, Iran, the US, South Africa, the US. UK, Australia, New Zealand, Botswana, Canada, Japan, and closer to home where I am, Singapore and Malaysia, to name a few. And so your presentations and your workshops and seminars notably deliver some solutions on managing emotions within the work realm. Could you tell us more about this and perhaps share a few best practices that you have seen proven successful over the years? Well, I've said to people, and I just got through doing another podcast just for corporate. We just did a corporate contest. We have control over three things in our life. Out of our brain, we have sensory neurons, we got interneurons, and we got motor neurons. And we have glial cells that are kind of overlapping and governing those. And our intentions and attentions affect the glial cells, which affect the nerve cells. And because we have control over perception, decisions, and actions, those are the places we need to start because that's what we have control of. We don't have control over everything else, just that. So we have control over the ability to perceive things on the way, not in the way. One of the greatest questions, most resourceful questions that I ask, which shocks people that want to run their story and be victims of history all the time. And I said, if you want to be a master of destiny, you want to be a victim of history. 
You want to run your story or you want to get on and do something amazing out of what's happened? Because William James said the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. So I'm not into hearing people's stories all day. I'm interested in reappraising those stories and reconfiguring those stories in such a way where they're now resourceful from them. So I said, okay, so how did what happen? What happened? This. And don't exaggerate it. Get the fact. Now, how specifically is it helping you fulfill what's most important, most meaningful, most committed, and most priority in your life? If they can't see it, they're going to run their story all day. But if you ask that question and hold them to it and make them dig and start new associations in the brain and remyelinate neuroplastically their brain, they will all of a sudden come up with amazing connections on how whatever's happened can now induce, in a sense, the executive function where creativity and productivity can come back. And I ask them that and hold them accountable to that. And once they see it, their perception of trauma has changed and they're more resourceful. So I would say that living by priority is the key. And if you're not filling your day in your actions with highest priority, you can't expect to have the most fulfillment and productivity. And if you can't transform whatever happens to your highest values, you're going to not be resourceful in what's happening around you. And you're going to want to blame things on the outside because your amygdala is going to come in and want to escape that which is difficult. So asking the question, how specifically is whatever's happening right now helping me fulfill what's most important in my life and my mission? And be accountable to answer that 20 or 30 times. And when I do that, I bring people to tears of gratitude and they go, I'm not even stressed by what's happened. It's now on the way. When COVID hit, I asked thousands of students around the world, thousands, to write down how it's helping them fulfill their mission. And I got 17,000 responses, some of them over 100 ways. And I was amazed at how all of a sudden they thank you for that question because right now, I'm now on track to be resourceful to take it instead of wallowing in what's happening and blaming something outside. Epictetus, the Stoic basically said, first we blame the world on the outside, then we blame ourselves, and then we realize there was nothing to blame because now we're resourceful and we realize, okay, how do I use this? And it's the challenges in life that create genius. It's the challenges that allow us to become resourceful. It's the challenges that activate our greatest brain capacity. It's the challenges that make us feel fulfilled when we conquer them. So running away and trying to escape the challenges is not the answer. It's turning the challenges and resourcefully into opportunities by asking quality questions. And then what is the highest priority action I can be doing right now that allow me to serve the greatest number of people in the most efficient, effective manner in a way that inspires me and fulfills them? Those are great questions to ask. And if you're asking those questions and accountable to answer those on a daily basis, amazing productivity will come out of you. I'm drinking up your words right now. I truly am. One question that keeps on nagging me that I really have to ask you is, what is to you the embodiment of a true leader besides the obvious of you know, helping your people access their highest value according to their own callings and strengths. And besides exemplifying to one's workforce, genuine authenticity, because for me, those leaders, but that obviously should be the status quo for a true, quote unquote, true leader. But I'd be curious to hear more about your views on your definition. Well, the executive function in the brain has inspired vision, strategic planning, a desire to execute the plan spontaneously, and self-governance. Those are the four basics. And if you lose your inspired vision and your real reason for doing what you're doing, your real mission for doing it, you've already lost the game. You're going to plateau. You're going to hit the Peter Principle on it. Can I share a story, a, a story that might help you? 
so I was in Australia, in Sydney, actually. And one of the consultants asked me, if I flew you to Melbourne, would you come and consult with a head of a company there? I said, yeah. So it was McKinsey Corporation that was actually the consultant was with. And so we went to the company in Melbourne, Australia, that was a forestry company and paper manufacturing company, paper goods. And it was one of the largest in that country. But worldwide, it wasn't the biggest, but it was one of the largest in the country. So when I got to Melbourne, I had the opportunity to meet with the four executives from the company, forestry company, paper company. And they were concerned because the leader of the company who founded the company was now 63, wanted to retire and was fading and losing the drive and didn't really give the reins over to the executives. And they wanted it. They knew they could grow the company, but he was still holding on. But he was kind of not really behind the scene. He's not really doing his job. And so I ended up going in and meeting with them first. And they wanted to either get him fired up or to retire and let them take over, one or the other. They'd rather have him be inspired because when he's on, he's amazing. So I went into the office. They gathered around. We're in his office. We got the other consultant there. And I said, I'm going to give you five minutes to summarize what you think is the reason why your business lost market share. That's it. Just got five minutes. And he starts coming in. He says, well, the Asian market and Japan and this. And he starts blaming. Whenever I see that, I know that they're not, they're not engaged. And I said, okay, now that you've said the BS, I want to know one thing. What inspired you to start this company? And what was the real mission that started this company? And he leaned back and he put his hands like this. And he goes, wow, I haven't thought or talked about that in a long time. And this is a story share. He said, when I grew up in Australia, I grew up right going into elementary school, right at the desegregation part, where they started to take the poor people and mix it with the richer people and blacks with whites and all kinds of things. And I came from a poor family and lived in a poor neighborhood. And I got all of a sudden, suddenly bust into a really rich school. And the first day I had to ride a bus and I was a little embarrassed because everybody had new shoes and new shirts and new clothes and new backpack kind of stuff and all this. And I didn't. And when I got into the class, they all had pens and pencils and paper and I didn't. And so at the end of the day, I felt really squashed and I didn't want to ride that bus home. So I didn't go home. I waited till the, the school was pretty empty and I went around to the trash cans and I looked for paper that wasn't used. And I grabbed every piece of paper out of all the trash cans that I thought may be usable. And I gathered it and I looked for all the pencils that might have been thrown away and I gathered pencils and I walked home. I got in trouble for being late. Why? Because they were worried. But I got home and after dinner and after my little chores, I got some glue and a paper cutter, scissors, and I made my first pad of paper and glued it together and made a pad of paper. So I had a pad of paper and I went sharp with the little pencils that were hardly used. And I came in with pencils on my ear and I felt prouder. I made sure that I ironed my own clothes and I brushed out anything that looked like a stain on it. I washed it and then ironed it and I washed my shoes and I did the best I could to make a difference between myself and them less. And then he said something with tears in his eyes. He said, I started this company so no child would ever have to be without a pad of paper and pencils. And all I said with him is this, did you forget the kids? You forgot the kids. Your company is not down because of Japan. Your company's not down because of this or that. It's never external things, rarely external things. Your company's down because you lost your mission. You got so successful, you stopped doing the things that got you there. You forgot your reason for why. And without the why, there's no hows, no strategies. 
you got to have the soul in the corporate body kind of thing. And he looked at me and he was in tears. The executives were in tears. They never heard the story. And he said, I have had turmoil for the last almost two years because I've been planning on retiring. And it scares me because some of the people I know who retired died within two years. But I've been assuming and planning with my wife all these years that I'm going to retire at a certain age. And I said to him, I said, if you talk to your wife, she's probably just as frightened about you coming home and being around the house, too. <laughs> Don't be surprised if she's having anxiety you being around because you're used to telling people what to do. And she's not going to like that. This is her house. <laughs> I said, if you want me, I'll talk to her about maybe you sticking around at work a little longer. He laughed and he said, you know what? I need to have a talk with my wife and see if she'll let me continue to do my mission because I'm afraid. I want to retire, but I don't want to retire. This is my life. But I've been in turmoil for a couple of years. The manager said they spoke up then because they weren't afraid to speak up. And he said, well, you haven't been you for almost two years. Ever since you decided it's now time, when he hit that 60 to 61 mark, I'm now going to wind down. And some of his friends were talking about it because when they first retired, they were all going, oh, I'm going golfing, I'm going this, I'm doing that. That's boring. You lose all your faculties. You lose your, if you don't have something to live for, you die. I always say, as long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you're ripe and you're rot. And I got him back on track, I think. And he turned the company around in less than six months and became the leader again in six months. A mass, you know, this is a big company. So you don't just turn it overnight. But what he did is he was back on track. And when he had his conversation with his wife, she was actually, he's, says, we'll schedule some trips that are romantic trips that I can do without interfering with the company. And we're going to go where he goes. So put the bucket list of where you want to go. We're going to go on romantic trips. And she says, I would rather do that. And you come home. <laughs> it's beautiful. I think it is such a powerful story. And thank you for sharing it. I think it's fair to assume that, again, if we do not care for the emotional wellness of our employees, or in this case, the emotional wellness of our leaders, because so often we think that leaders have it all together and are confident and do not waver in any way, and it couldn't be further from the truth, but that by caring for our leaders, by caring for the wellness of our employees, at the end of the day, the bottom line of the organizations at stake can only thrive from it. And so your story is such a beautiful depiction of that. And I can also imagine his wife being very relieved. Uh, so in the end, everyone... Well, there. many people live in fantasies for 30 or 40 years while they're going to work thinking, well, someday I'll do it. Someday I'll, someday I'll, someday I'll. That island doesn't exist. <laughs> It's now there's no uh, what, they, what was that ship that show with the captain and the ship? I don't know, love boat. I think it was. There was always this fantasy island. You know, I'm a firm believer that people, when they have something deeply meaningful that makes a difference in people's lives, that they have sustainable fair exchange with, there's more fulfillment there than I would say. Money without meaning leads to debauchery and destruction, but money with meaning leads to philanthropy. Can I share another story? Do I have time for another story? Yes, absolutely. So I um, was 27 years old. I just started my practice and a meeting planner approached me and asked me to do a presentation on success. Now I'm just starting out. I'm just like, this is like my first few weeks of practice. And I did well in practice. So I later developed that. But at the time I just started. 
And she asked me to speak to about 60, 67 to 80-year-old oil executives of the leading oil companies in Texas, Arco, Humble Oil, ExxonMobil, Shell Corporation. I mean, these were the executives that had run that company for 30 and 40 years, some of them. And this whippersnapper, this 27-year-old is going to teach him about success. This is the irony of it, you know? You ask her, I want to speak, and you got to go and do this. So I am... Um, I'm on backstage and I look out the curtain, you know, I'm speaking out, look out the curtain and I see a bunch of guys with their arms crossed, their legs crossed, leaning back with kind of this mafiosa bored look on their face going, okay, what's this going to be about, you know, this gathering. And I had something planned, but by the time I was there looking out that thing, there's no way I was going to present what I had planned. I forgot. My mind was like, no way. I did not read this crowd. I had no idea what this is about really. But all of a sudden, in the last 12 seconds before I got on stage, an idea came to me. And the idea was the greatest fear that people have is the fear of public speaking and speaking in front of peers. So I thought, I need to flip this thing around and take my anxiety and put it onto them. So I got up on stage and the first thing I said, everybody pull out a piece of paper and please write this down. As long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you ripen, you're up. And I just had everybody write that. That's my opening line. And I came down with a microphone because it was a handheld in those days. I came down, walked down onto the thing, got amongst the circular tables, held the microphone in one of the CEOs, the former CEOs. I said, if you're green, you're growing, which means you have something deeply meaningful that you're committed to, that you're doing, that challenges you, that puts you your skills and talents to the test to do something or otherwise you're decaying. So what is that that you're working on and what are the fears that you're facing and what is the mission you have now, now that you have retired? And this guy <laughs> was like, oh, God, what are people going to think? Oh, uh, 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 he wasn't prepared. So all of the anxiety that I had, I'm waiting for him to get over his anxiety and he starts speaking and kind of mumbling and stuff like that and starts to figure out what to say as he goes along and what he's doing. And he's really not really doing much. And he's trying to come and think about what he's thinking about doing and stuff like that. And everybody in that room was going, oh, yeah. booger. Is he going to come to me next? And they were quickly thinking and trying to get them. And I went to each one of those individuals and made them all speak up. And it was at the end, I got a standing ovation. I never spoke. Wow. Wow. That's good. <laughs> and all the people thought that was brilliant. They thought, they said, man, we've been sitting on our butt and we've been not doing much and we're really rotting and you just nail us and we do need something. And they got together, some of them, and thought about what they want to do with their talents before they rotted. It was really inspiring to watch. But I was scared because I was comparing myself to others instead of comparing my own actions to my own highest values at that time. And this is a great lesson. We're not here to put people on pedestals or pits. We're here to put people in our hearts. And if we put people on pedestals, we'll inject their values and confuse and make ourselves unclear about our own mission. And if we put people on pits, we'll project our values onto them and expect them to live in our values, which is futile. Mistakes are not what people make. Mistakes are what we label things when we expect to live in other people's values or expect them to live in ours. And when we finally realize that, that's liberating and when we realize if we have more of a level playing field and respect their own unique set of values, we are going to be greater leaders. Absolutely. And this is something that I, as a leader myself, remind myself 
of often, not just within the realm of work, but within my personal life is, Molly, lead your own race. Do not compare yourself to anyone else because comparison always leads to deceit and unhappiness in one way, shape or form. I love that story, Dr. Demartini. I love it. I think we have time for one last question, and I really wanted to know your thoughts on it. Well, actually, two. And so in your words, there is always opportunity in crisis. And amidst this COVID pandemic, which has shaken up the world, do you think leadership values and principles will more slash adapt into more humanistic and authentic ways? Well, I don't want to take each individual on how they are perceiving the world and how resourceful they are will determine that. So I don't want to make a collective statement when it's really individualized. But companies right now realize that there's a lot of resourcefulness that can be done at home. People can be sitting at home in their computers. I mean, I know companies right now that go, we aren't going to renew our spaces. We're going to have people live like this now on. It's just more efficient. And so this is going to allow people to interact with their families. It's going to allow people to be more creative. They might be able to work out more. There's there's upsides to this. I don't like to think of Corona as a bad thing. I like to think of Corona as an event. An event is whatever you make out of it. You make a heaven out of a hell or a hell of a heaven, as John Milton said. So I like to think it's forcing us to adapt to a technologically more advanced position. That I think is a great step forward. But at the same time, that doesn't guarantee that each individual may not have unrealistic expectations and become amygdalized and autocratic and have to learn their lessons again. I always say a union is a symptom of an autocrat. (laughs) When you care about your people, they don't have to gather together to counterbalance you. (laughs) But when you are forced to fight with with a union all the time, that means the union represents the side of you that you've disowned. That's the bottom line. And the union is now also representing, the CEO is also representing the side of the union that's not owned. It's disowned part, I would say. But when all of a sudden you are willing to come down and meet people in their model of the world and try to listen to what they're doing and try to find a profitable solution, I found a great eye-opener. I got to share this. So I believe that each individual deserves to know what they really cost the company. I found productivity goes up immediately when they find the facts. I'll give you an example because hiding stuff from people I don't think is wise. I had a lady that worked in my office and I walked into her office and I said, Betty, I got a question for you. Were you productive today? And she says, yeah, I think I was. I did this. I did this. I did this. Okay. Um, Do you know what productivity means? She goes, well, I think, you know, she was confusing busy with productivity. And I was using questions just to educate her. And I said, Betty, just out of curiosity, what is job security? She goes, well, having a job and having a company that's got job position that's always available. I said, job security is producing more than you cost and being beyond the average return for the average employee. If you're beyond that, no one's going to get rid of you. I said, let's do a little experiment. Let's find out what you cost. And I said, how much does your space in your office cost? We took one portion of the office, the whole office, what it was per month. I said, this is your cost here, your desk, your computer, your telephone. And we went down a list of about 100 items. And she thought her cost, a lot of employees think their cost is their salary. They don't think of about in business terms. They think in just salary. So when we found out, and when she found out that the cost to break even was three and a quarter times her salary, she asked me, do I still have a job? And I said, as long as you produce more than you cost and more than the average cost. And I said, so let's go look. 
I said, but we also have these costs, my training time cost, my per hour cost to train you all the time, a lost opportunity cost. Sometimes you might've blown it with a client. Times when you're farting around and not really getting to doing stuff and you're taking longer lunches and stuff that we sometimes do. And I whittled it away and I said, now let's take the total productivity of the business. Let's take the total cost of the business and let's look at what the margin is. And let's take that a margin percentage and take that and add it to your cost. Because that means that you're at average now. That's your average productivity compared to everybody. I said, and if anytime you're above that, you have job security now. And she calculated it out. She found out how much it was a month. She found out how much it is a day for working. And she says, so all I have to do is produce about $1,000 a day and I've got job security and you got a profit margin? Yeah, if you produce two, you deserve a raise. If you produce less than that, you deserve a, the opposite direction. Your job is jeopardy. And what she did, what she did with that information, I didn't have to be an autocrat. I just made her educated. She increased her productivity almost threefold. Wow. Because she said, I want to work for you until I stop. She worked till 72. But I believe that that in itself, there's a thing called equity theory. And equity theory is an internal thermostat, psychostat inside every human being to want to have fair exchange. If they're deceived on what a fair exchange is because they think, well, I'm having to get paid this and you make all this, and they don't really know all the cost, they have a skewed idea what fair exchange is, and then they are not as engaged to get that fair exchange. But a really informed, objective individual who has an internal consciousness intuitively will try to step up their productivity automatically the second they know the facts. It's such a great tip. I think it could be perhaps the next main key KPI for all companies and the amount of time companies could save. Because as you know, we tend to have our lists of KPIs, which sometimes run way too long and at the end of the day are completely unrealistic because there are so many when you could just boil it down to that productivity factor. Dr. Demartini, one last question. What would be a key takeaway that you could share for leaders and companies out there who are, again, still doubting the importance of listening and catering to the emotional well-being of their employees? Well, I'll say it as simply as I can. If you're not in touch with your customer, what happens to sales? They plummet. If you're not in touch with the needs and values of your employees, what happens to productivity? It's that simple. I love it. Dr. Demartini, thank you for the honor of coming on the show. I have so much respect for you and your work. And we agree that we need to escalate the awareness of companies toward mental wellness and demystify all these moral hypocrisies of how we are supposed to be and how we are to conform in the corporate landscape. To quote you, perseverance, you say, in the same direction over time adds up to great achievement. When we know what direction to take, we begin our path to success. And so with this in mind, I'm sure that we will one day get to a place where emotional inclusion will be the new status quo across all companies. Thank you. I'd say thank you for the interview today and thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a few stories and um, hopefully some little principles and methods that could be helpful to people. Thank you so much, Dr. Demartini. Where can people continue to connect with you and engage with you and your work? 
all they have to do is go to drdmartini.com or Dmartini Institute, either one, but drdmartini.com, they go on my website, they could spend the rest of their life on there. They'd almost have to be a Buddhist believing in reincarnation to be able to, to read it. <laughs> there's so much on there. But there's there's a lot on there, and it's mainly educational. I'm an educator, so I, there's just educational material. I've spent hours on it myself, and I can truly testify to that. Thank you again so much for coming on. I'm so grateful for you choosing to spend time with us today at Emotional Inclusion. I know how precious your time is. So once again, a warm, a warm, warm thank you. Well, thank you. Friends, if this content is delivering value to you, and if you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to make emotional inclusion in the workforce a new norm. And your rating and reviewing really helps with that. Thank you again so much for tuning in. And until next time, my friends, be bold and be brave. Thanks for listening to my conversation today. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have a chance, please rate and review, hit subscribe to receive new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out emotionalinclusion.com slash the podcasts.